Shot reverse shot alternate 100. Um, you all know the rules by now. If you don't, where have you been? Uh, parts one. <laughs> um, uh, Ed is with me as usual. Hello, Ed. How are you doing? Hello, I, I'm doing very well. I've got a uh, a Blue Moon Belgian beer here to help me through uh, recording this, just to kind of loosen up the the mind. Yeah, I've got a cup of tea. Uh, I don't. I wish I had a blue Blue Moon beer though. Sounds quite nice. It's very nice. Mm. Uh, this podcast is in by no way sponsored by Blue Moon Beer. Although unless if, they want to. Unless you want to, then of course we will oblige uh, to plug you literally. We only review films that feature the song Blue Moon. Um, <laughs> it'll be like American Wealth in London. You know, all the songs have got moon in it. We'll just talk about things that have got blue moons in. Um, <laughs> I don't really think that would stretch out very long, would it? No, I think Blue Moon's used in at least two films. Mm. I can't remember what the second one. So we'd get two episodes out of it. We talk about Greece a lot, wouldn't we? Um, yeah. It's the word. Exactly. Uh, anyway, that nonsense aside, uh, but if you are listening, Blue Moon, <laughs> get in touch. Um, we're going to kick off uh, our second lot of films. The Alternate 100. Those who listened to the first episode, uh, we're just going to like crack into it. Uh, film number eleven uh, on our list of uh, alternate great films um, is a film from the uh, kind of Korean new wave. Would it be fair to call it that, Ed? Yeah, Korean new wave or Korean Renaissance. Yeah. Basically, the, uh, the the great sort of uh, wellspring of amazing films that have been coming out of South Korea over the last uh, over the last sort of fifteen years at this point. Yeah, we're going to go back to 2006 for Junho Bong's The Host. Ostensibly, Ed, it's a creature feature. Uh, we are fans of those. Um, but it's one that kind of breaks all the rules. I think if, you, if you're looking at um, general guidelines for special effects usage, people say, you know, keep your shots short. Um, you know, show a monster or your creature in kind of darkness, you shadow. Uh, and also kind of uh, imply its presence, build up to it, you know, reveal it late on. You know, Jaws is a classic example of that. They had a kind of a wonky-looking shark. You don't see it for, like, nearly an hour and kind of 10, hour and 20 minutes. Now, the host uh, opens with a scene in broad daylight which reveals the monster in full and in incredibly long tracking shots. So it kind of just throws out the rule book and, oh, my, it's effective, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. Like you say, most of those sort of films, Alien is another good example, and Aliens... Uh are good examples of films that kind of hold back on showing you the creatures just for as long as possible 
and uh, the host completely breaks that rule. They not only are they long tracking shots, there's also sort of very long, lingering sort of slow motion of the the creature kind of jumping through the air, so you can really get a look at all the detail. And uh, part of that, I think, is is it's effective is because it's an amazing design. It, it's a creature that looks like about twelve different animals melded together, but it moves in a way that's incredibly uh, natural and and kind of. Uh, menacing just because of its size even though at the same time uh Bong Joon-ho gets a lot of uh gets a lot of mileage out of sort of the dark comedy of it kind of picking people up as it's running along and as it's chasing uh the main character and his daughter yeah um seemingly uh kind of well kind of ridiculously really um this is actually based on a true story of uh, American troops flushing formaldehyde down a toilet. Um, and so, that, I mean, that's how the host starts. It's kind of uh, US troops stationed there, kind of flushing chemicals down a toilet. Um, but I don't think in real life there was a giant monster unless there was something we didn't hear about. No, unless there's a massive, uh, a massive cover-up, which is kind of hinted at in the film, because uh, the host is, you know, something that I remember hearing Mark Kermode say, several years ago about Korean films is that all Korean films are about five films in one and uh, the host is definitely that it's a creature feature it's a family melodrama it's a dark comedy and it's also a satire about of like the Korean government's relationship with the American government and allowing the Americans to kind of run roughshod over its people and in the film it does sort of uh, float the idea of there being sort of a cover-up to the fact that you know this creature is roving around killing people and um, there's also a kind of it's still um as kind of east asian films tend to be kind of uh, preoccupied with uh the kind of kind of minutiae of domestic life there's a bit even though they are running from uh, a giant kind of lizard snake pig goat um they stop and kind of in a in a i think it's a haulage container and they have some noodles, but they just kind of sit quietly while they wait for them to kind of brew and then just kind of eat them down. It's just like you wouldn't get that in any uh, any other film where they, uh, the kind of the participants, uh, the protagonists of the, of the film stop and kind of just have a quiet meal. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that sets that film and also uh, uh, Bong Joon-ho's other films like Memories of Murder and, and Mother apart uh, 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 um, is they're, they're really good at just being genre films and sci-fi films or, or crime films uh, but they're also they just have these kind of little moments of that you just don't see in in other films these like little quiet moments or little sweet moments or little funny moments and it uh, it's one of the things that really sets him apart you know he has a style that feels really unencumbered by any kind of output from sort of studios or whatever or even just from uh the sort of the laws of filmmaking he does really seem to be uh making up the rules as he goes along but not in a way that feels arbitrary in a way that feels uh sort of exciting mm, yeah um i think most successful korean film in korea ever i think it is i, I get the feeling snowpiercer might be getting very close to topping it but if we if we ever get to fucking see Snowpiercer, for those of you who don't get this, we previewed Snowpiercer twice on the last two preview shows at the start of each year, uh, and it's still to appear uh, in yeah, the UK, that, definitely. 
The Great Gatsby we did twice in a row as well. And Foxcatcher as well, which might not even make it. Uh, we might be able to pull out three previews of Foxcatcher because I'm not sure that will be released uh, this year in the UK, definitely. Yeah, basically, studios are fucking with us. Mm. We're not we're not taking kindly to it. No, we're not taking it anymore. So, film number 11 on our list, uh, The Host. Uh, watch it um, and enjoy. Um, film number 12 is a film uh, by a highly acclaimed filmmaker, but it's a film of his that um, is rarely, rarely talked about, and it's not really readily available, which is a massive shame. Um, it's a, in fact, it's a fucking travesty. Uh, the filmmaker is Sidney Lumet, and the film is The Porn Broker. Why, why do you call him Creature? Because he's black? No, not because he's black, I don't care what he is. I'm non-discriminatory, non-sectarian. Black, white or yellow, they're all equally... Equally what? Scum. Rejects. mighty hard man, Mr. Nashman. Now, people, you know, think of Sidney Lumet, they think of Dodd Day Afternoon, they think of 12 Angry Men, they think of The Verdict, they think of Serpico, you know, all his, all, all the hits, Ed, all the big ones. Um, why is The Pawnbroker uh, slipped between the cracks? Because it is an absolutely remarkable film. It is a remarkable film, and it's a film that actually has quite a significant uh, legacy because... Uh, it's a film that was one of the first films to kind of really take the techniques of the French New Wave and apply them to American cinema. It was one of the first films, to, American films, to deal with the Holocaust from survivors' perspective. It was the first film under the uh, under the the production code or the dying days of the production code to uh, feature full frontal female nudity, uh, which uh, was a big controversy at the time and was uh, allowed because of the film's inherent artistic merit, which was kind of the death knell for the production code and, and led to like all the great films in the 70s that really pushed the uh, the uh, pushed the envelope in terms of content and violence and sexuality. So it's a film that has this huge, that has had a huge influence, but I think it it's fell between the, uh, between the cracks because it's not really in a kind of uh, readily identifiable genre is really just a drama about a man going around his life and sort of revealing his history as he goes along and i think that what allows you know the the, the other lumet films to kind of really uh linger in the imagination and in the in the culture is that they are kind of these great dramas wrapped up in you know being about bank robbers or you know about in a courtroom drama uh, whereas this is just and i think a straightforward drama is harder for people to kind of latch onto and remember. Mm. I mean, I first came across this film um, when I was reading Sidney Lumet's book he wrote, Making Movies, which uh, you know I harp on about quite a lot on this show, um, is an invaluable book about, uh, well, hey, making movies. Um, I advise everyone to read it if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, but he talks about how he edited it, and I remember reading uh, the section on the idea behind the famous, well, it's not famous because no one knows about it, uh, the, the scene in the subway carriage where uh, the character played by Rod Steiger, who is a Holocaust survivor, is uh, on a subway carriage in New York and the kind of camera moves around the carriage but flicks as the light goes, you know, kind of the, the effect of the light 
uh, cutting in and out when a, a, a subway train kind of goes through a, a station and a tunnel, uh, and it flicks between Rod Steiger on the subway train to being uh, on one of the transport trains going to a concentration camp. And it is one of the most remarkably edited sequences I think I've ever seen. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think one of the things that it's it's great about is it's a great film about uh, representing how memory works. You know, and uh, there's several of those little flashes throughout. You know, he'll hear a sound or he'll see something that suddenly causes him to kind of have these little flashes, which are illustrated through that that sort of really jagged uh, editing. But that's the obviously the most kind of heartrending because it takes this incredibly mundane thing of riding the subway. And then immediately cuts to this kind of horrifying situation of of human uh, cruelty and degradation. Um, Rod Steiger, uh, that's the kind of uh, role of a lifetime, isn't it? It is, and it's uh, quite. Uh, I think it was quite different. Difficult. Uh, it was quite different for him at the time because it was. It's immensely subdued in a lot of ways because the idea of his character is he is a a man who has tried to cut himself off from all emotion. Because you know he survived the Holocaust, he watched his his family die, and he he's more or less alone, except for the kind of handful of relatives he has in America, and he lives in sort of suburbia, and it's this just incredibly bland and empty kind of existence he has, and then he goes to work in his pawn shop in Harlem, which is incredibly alive, and he just doesn't want to connect with people because he's seen kind of human ugliness at its worst, and obviously he doesn't want to have to. Uh, to have to deal with that and, and, and what Steiger does is he really internalises it all and he doesn't, there are some points in the film where he barely moves but he says so much through how what little he does uh, it, is, it is truly remarkable, especially for someone who, I think for a lot of people you know, might think of him as someone who's quite hammy or could be quite hammy because he was very, very method and very, very kind of intense and this isn't kind of an outward intensity Mm. I do take it back. It wasn't a role of a lifetime because I've just remembered that Rod Steiger is in the um, Stallone Sharon Stone vehicle, The Specialist. So I take it back. Um, he had two roles of his lifetime. Well, yeah, he's uh, one of those lucky guys, I guess. Um, uh, the pawnbroker uh, ruined Austin Powers for me. Why would that be Ed? <laughs> because the theme from Austin Powers uh, that, that is originates in the pawnbroker. Uh, which had its score written by uh, Quincy Jones, and a lot of it is kind of this really kind of frenetic jazz, and mm. then in kind of some of the really light-hearted scenes, uh, they just decide to have this kind of really ridiculous sort of swinging 60s, before it was the swinging 60s, uh, style music playing, and it's uh, it's really jarring now. It's incredibly jarring to hear that music used in any situation other than the kind of the high camp of the Austin Powers films. Yeah, yeah. So every time I see Austin Powers now, I just think of the Holocaust, which is not really what you want to do if you're watching Austin Powers. No, unless it's the third one, in which case that's just kind of what you uh, think about. Yeah, you know, I, I, mean, I know we're going to get off the point here, but like uh, I w- recently uh, watched all three Austin Powers films on consecutive nights. Um, uh, <laughs> I was just kind of working through my old housemate's DVD collection before he moved out. And... Um, uh, the first one, I, I think, still pretty great. There's some awesome jokes in there. I think I yeah. still think the joke about, you know, when the, when the henchman dies, he's got a wife and kids, and like his mates. That <laughs> I think that's remarkable. And you know, the sight gag of him trying to turn the the little truck around in a corridor, 
you know, it's a masterpiece. Um, I watched the second one and I hated it. I really didn't like it at all. And then the third one I really enjoyed. Uh, and I don't know why. I think maybe because I'd, I'd only seen the third one once at the pictures. Um, and, you know, it wasn't as familiar. Whereas I think I've seen number two about ten times. Yeah, I think yeah, I think maybe the third one's not as bad as I remember it being. But the second one is. It just kind of dials everything that was kind of quotable about the first one up to about 11. Mm. Uh, and it just becomes a bunch of catchphrases and they fill in the gaps with just like scatological humour that doesn't really come from anything. Mm. Well, that's taking care of films 13 to 15 as the Austin Powers <laughs> trilogy. Um, no, I jest. None of those are in there at all. Um, uh, we don't have any Mike Myers films in, apart from maybe one. Uh, there's a little clue for you about a future episode. Anyway, that nonsense aside, um, time to move on to our next film. Uh, our next film is uh, another film by a great director, kind of a big Oscar-winning director who, who kind of did it all in his lifetime, but a film of his that really gets talked about. Uh, we're talking about John Huston's Fat City. Hey, what's the matter? Hey. I love you so much. Hey, come on. Hey, everything's going to be okay now. I feel it is. Yeah. You can count on me. Right. But I can count on you. Yeah. I can count on you. <laughs> and you can count on me. <laughs> and we can count on each other. <laughs> Uh, Fat City is uh, kind of a, what you call it, kind of a character study, kind of boxing drama uh, with uh, Jeff Bridges, young, young Jeff Bridges, um, and um, a kind of rare lead role for uh, one of uh, kind of Hollywood's least used and actors, uh, Stacey Keach. Yes, it's a, it's a, like you say, it's a great character study of these guys who are really on the bottom rung of of life in many ways. Stacey Keach is an old, well, not old, but, you know, he's a guy in his sort of late 20s, early 30s, who's a, a boxer who's kind of run down. His career's never really gone anywhere. He picks fruit with migrant workers to get by. And he meets uh, this young boxer played by Jeff Bridges, who kind of he's really impressed by, and he wants to, to train, and, you know, he, he himself wants to kind of improve. And it's all about this kind of, this slim bit of hope that uh, that it provides into his life, which kind of makes him think, oh, maybe I can, you know, get turn my life around. And, uh, you know, the title Fat City kind of is a, a, a slang for uh, the good life and it's meant to be like a place that's impossible to get to. And uh, I think that idea kind of permeates the whole film. It's like this little sliver of hope that things will go well. Kind of doesn't. Mm. It's like kind of the anti-Rocky, really, isn't it? In, in its uh, in its outlook, in the sense that there's this kind of grubby romanticism to it, but it's the emphasis very much on the grubby. Oh yeah, it's it's incredibly kind of uh, grubby and uh, you know, that horrible term gritty. It really is kind of a, a look at the world of boxing with a kind of romanticism of what boxing can be, but completely separated from the world of uh, you know, sort of making loads of money or winning title fights. Like everyone in that film is someone who is just at the bottom of the socio-economic ladder and just trying to get by. And it's a, it's rare that you see that in 
I think, in sports films, because most sports films, they want to focus on people who could be champions. Mm. And you you look at sort of Stacey Keith, and you just know in he- in your heart that he'll never really amount to anything as a boxer. And even Jeff Bridges, who seems to have a lot of potential, you just know he's going to end up wasting it just on this on Skid Row, basically. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, if you can imagine what Rocky would have been like had it been written by Charles Bukowski, you're probably somewhere in the area of, of, of yeah. Fat City. Yeah, talented people just drinking themselves very slowly to death. Um, also features um, an absolute knockout turn by Susan Terrell, who uh, sadly died, uh, I think it was the end of last year, um, as a kind of like alcoholic barfly who kind of is always... Uh, well, propping up the bar and talking to Stacey Keach, and that is one of the best drunk performances I think I've ever seen. And John Houston should know because he's directed a few. Yes, and uh, and been drunk quite himself, quite a lot himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, it's uh, remarkable, and it's the, her performance is one of those kind of strange occurrences where uh, she's an actor that is. Uh, you know, kind of a respected stage and screen actor, always kind of bubbling away, but then she's got this one performance that just kind of defines her, uh, and little else of note when you kind of look at it on paper. I mean, obviously she's done great work, um, but that's what's what people are going to remember her for. And there's there's worse things to be remembered for than for, for Fat City. Um, it was uh, kind of in the tail end of John Huston's career. Um, when he kind of started putting it together, he kind of followed it with uh, the man who would be king. Um, and then after that, it was a kind of a piecemeal career. Do you think that those two were his last good films uh, or last great films, as it were? Um, or are you, are you one of those people who kind of hankers for the dead? Uh, I think that the dead is, the dead is really good and, and really beautiful uh, film. Um, I quite like Pritzi's honor. I don't think it's a great film, but I think it's very fun. I think that, Towards the end of his life, and uh, Under the Volcano is a very, a very intense film with a great performance by Albert Finney. Um, I think he still had, he still had greatness in him. Mm. I think that sort of early run of early seventies films, that and Man Who Would Be King, and uh, uh, and Wise Blood with uh, Brad Dourif, that's uh, that's kind of the point that he started to be uh, really kind of. That was his last kind of sustained greatness. Yeah. Yeah, um, I always kind of find it fascinating to see what happens to those old Hollywood guys when they're kind of uh, faced with that new wave of Hollywood. The you know your movie brats. Uh, we we talk about the seventies quite a lot, and and to see uh, John Huston going kind of toe to toe to use a, a boxing analogy uh, with um, the the kind of new pretenders is 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 you know quite remarkable. Yeah, he certainly in in Fat City and Wise Blood, he really kind of takes to the new style very well you kind of get the sense that had he been born 20 years later he would have really fit in with them he was only really constrained by the sort of rules of the era that he was he worked in you know he wanted to make films like what the guys in the 70s were doing in the 40s and 50s but obviously he wasn't allowed to yeah absolutely but uh another film that's quite hard to get hold of it's available in america on dvd but not in europe uh not really widely available streaming either but uh, if you can get hold of it, I do recommend doing so because it is rather choice. Our next film is uh, one um, which we kind of mentioned at the start that we had to radically re, re- kind of do our list because we were overpopulated with Walter Hill films. Um, 
because they seem to be largely unappreciated, except by us. But uh, Mr. Hill's first entry uh, into our top 100 uh, is his uh, seminal gang classic, The Warriors. Warriors, come out to play. Um, clearly a film made at the height of kind of New York's gang paranoia. Uh, why do you still think The Warriors kind of works today? Because it shouldn't. It's really fucking camp and stupid, but it's still really great. Why is that? Uh, I think the campiness does kind of play into it. I think that the, the idea of watching these different gangs, some of whom are dressed as uh, baseball-playing clowns, some of whom are kind of disco roller skaters mm-hmm. kind of running around New York. That's just funny. That's just fun to watch. But I think uh, I think it's, it's just like, one of the things that's great about uh, Walter Hill is he was someone who was, as a writer, and you know, I say was as if he's dead, but he's still alive. He's still making films, more or less. Um, he's someone who is very, very good at kind of uh, keeping things kind of minimalist from a writing perspective and a storytelling perspective and all of his best films have a really strong core of storytelling and i think at the heart the warrior is just a bunch of guys on the run trying to get home and that is just really compelling even if you know the the everything else around it is uh is kind of campy and weird yeah it's so minimalist and so spare um and he kind of does films like that um uh, Southern Comfort is one that I I'm just going to state this now I'm kind of a little bit annoyed that we didn't manage to squeeze into the, the top 100 another great film about kind of guys just trying to get home uh, against all odds um, but his he, he directs action so well his the action scenes uh, are so tense and so kind of uh, just so lean um, you know someone like a Zack Schneider could probably learn a thing or two by watching you know a brawl between you know, guys on roller skates in a toilet uh, <laughs> with people dressed like they're kind of um, YMCA, uh, kind of the village people, uh, has got, you know, infinitely more tension and impact than, uh, you know, kind of CGI-enhanced people in pants kind of just punching each other in fast motion than slow motion. Yeah, it's it, he's just a, a great classicist in terms of how he stages action. He, he knew exactly what he wanted from each shot and then he doesn't waste a second uh, in depicting what he needs to do. Uh, also in terms of you know the appeal of the Warriors, certainly from our perspective in, in uh, 2014, I think it's the fact it offers a window into how people viewed New York in the late 70s. Uh, obviously it's through a kind of hyper sort of pseudo-dystopian lens, the idea that New York is isn't pretty much literally run by gangs mm. past like as soon as the sun goes down, which is obviously an exaggeration. But if you look at that or something like Escape from New York and Taxi Driver, they all present this image of what people think either New York was or what New York would very soon become, which obviously uh, from our perspective now looks insane because New York's actually now seen as quite a gentrified place, which has sort of its crime problems, but isn't kind of a cesspit, which is what it seemed to be becoming in the 70s. Mm. And I think that is is kind of an invaluable window into how people viewed the city in the past. 
Yeah, and a boon for anyone looking for novelty uh, dress-up uh, outfits for fancy dress parties and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The uh, Oh, crap. What's the name of the baseball? Baseball again? Furies. Baseball Furies. That's, a, that's a, a great one if you want to, A, you know, dust off your old baseball uniform, which obviously you have now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, if you want to just make yourself look like one of those black and white people from Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that um, uh, it's the kind of best film about gangs because it doesn't take itself kind of so seriously? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think that that, that plays into it a lot. Their camaraderie being in a gang, but it's also just, it does have a lot of fun with that concept. Mm. Um, Remake's been on the cards for quite some time I think Tony Scott was attached to it Obviously Tony Scott sadly died Last year Um, I don't want to see that happen Yeah I don't think it would uh, I don't think it would work Unless you, I don't know I was just trying to think where would you set it I guess Detroit now would be the place to set it Mm, Or or Chicago Hackney Hackney. Mm. I'd like to see Hackney uh, Hackney Warriors I think would would be Fun yeah. Especially because all my friends from uni who used to watch the Warriors all the time all now live in Hackney, and I think uh, they would enjoy that quite a bit being in a remake. Mm. But uh, no, I think it's it's so indelibly tied to the time in which it was made and sort of the the paranoia about gangs uh, that was kind of blown all out of proportion by the media. And I don't think that uh, trying to repl- replicate it now would would really work, especially because. Uh, you know the the version of the gang fighting in that, which is all fist fights or bludgeoning each other with kind of found objects, uh, is kind of quaint. I think now people that watch it and just kind of think, why aren't they just shooting each other? Mm, yeah. uh, and I think that one of the things that's quite nice about it is it does kind of tie into this kind of there's this kind of interesting honor system going on in the Warriors where everyone ha- it has to be kind of like a fair fight, even though these guys are on their own running through a city full of people who want to kill them. No one's shooting at them. You know, they, they give them a fair chance to get through it all. Yeah. Um, it, it just makes you long for the rough and tumble days of, uh, you know, fist fighting and, you know, man-on-man contact in toilets. Um, I think it's, this is probably, The Warriors is probably the only film um, on our list that spawned a very good video game. Yeah, no one's ever saw... saw fit to uh, make a, a fat city uh, video game. Yeah, Although we, with the indie game market, I'm sure we could we could knock one together now. Yeah, yeah. If anyone's listening out there and wants to help put together a fat city video game <laughs> in which uh, you take a uh, not a young and upcoming fighter, uh, you take a kind of old palooka uh, and you basically just kind of stave off chronic alcoholism <laughs> in a really <laughs> grim, bleak setting, then um, yeah, let, let us know. Uh, get in touch. And uh, we'll make that happen. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, The Warriors, uh, marvellous piece of work. Um, our next film is we're going to kind of move forward through time um, and uh, kind of come over to these shores for a bit. Um, we're talking about a film that's uh, relatively new, one of the newer films on our list. Uh, it's Andrew Hayes' Weekend. And he looked at me and he looked at the TV screen and he saw Rupert Graves shuddering cock and he knew. I called me a faggot, called me a queer. But the weird thing was, in that moment, I could see myself through his eyes. You know, yeah. I could see what I looked like. 
And you know what? You didn't care. I didn't care. Exactly. I thought if he wants to see me as some horny little faggoty, angry child, then that's fine with me. It doesn't make any difference. Are you still friends with him? Nah. And I wasn't friends with anyone else after he told the rest of the school. That's awful, Glenn. That's what it is. Um, so, yeah, Weekend, not to be confused with the Goddard film of the same name. Uh, what's Weekend about it? Uh, Weekend is a kind of before-sunrise style film about 24 hours in the life of a couple, but uh, it's about the uh, 24 hours in the life of uh, of two gay men who uh, meet whilst on a night out in Nottingham and they have a, a one-night stand and then instead of kind of separating the next day they just spend the day together walking around Nottingham talking to each other about their lives about sort of their their gay experience and uh it's just a a wonderfully kind of funny interesting uh, romantic film it's um yeah kind of uh, what struck me about watching weekend is it uh was just so kind of subtle and relaxed about it it would have been mm. so easy to make that film and go uh we're making a film and by the way guys these these fellas are gay right let's make a big deal out of it and then pretend we're not making a big deal out of it. Um, whereas, like, it doesn't even kind of compute in Weekend. Yeah, exactly. It it doesn't feel like a big, important issues movie, which actually is kind of what makes it so uh, revolutionary. Uh, it's, it's one of the kind of first sort of uh, mainstream, because it was quite successful in the in the UK and it was uh, you know it's in the Criterion collection over here and it's obviously uh, it's obviously you know done quite well and developed quite a big reputation but it's one of the first ones I can see I can remember seeing that treated being gay as a thing that was entirely normal and not something to kind of you know uh, make a big kind of uh, stand about from a kind of a social issues point of view yeah um, and it's uh, kind of remarkably tender. It's beautifully shot, uh, given that it's 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 fairly confined, uh, with a few exceptions. It's mostly uh, the guys hanging around in a in a flat, um, and uh, yeah, it kind of um, feels kind of un-British somehow. I think that a lot of British films about relationships tend to be either more closed up or to kind of play it off as a joke. Whereas I think in in weekend there isn't really you know it's it can be quite funny in their reactions but it treats their their interactions with each other uh, with kind of a real kind of earnestness. Um, and it's one of those rare films, uh, British films that uh, kind of the, the thing that the American films seems to have over a lot of British films is 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 the kind of uh, performance aspect in American mm-hmm. movies is is kind of a lot in, especially independent movies. Uh, kind of a lot more improvised, a looser feeling. Um, I think that's you know still a hangover from uh, British acting training, kind of lying more on kind of classical uh, techniques rather than you know your uh, kind of more modern techniques. Uh, this is a generalisation, but uh, Weekend one of those ones that uh, feels really natural without feeling like it's a kitchen sink drama. It does just feel like two real people sharing a connection and talking to each other, uh, not really, not kind of overthinking what they're saying, just kind of saying whatever's on their mind. And, you know, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel written. 
and obviously I'm sure that you know they went in with uh, ideas of what certain scenes were going to be and what certain conversations were going to be but it still it feels like you know, real people talking to each other about real things rather than something where someone's sat down and purposely kind of crafted this kind of piece about you know the gay experience in Britain uh, it just kind of incidentally is that whilst mainly being about the relationship and the romance between these two guys um Andrew Hay uh, has since gone on and uh, he's got an HBO show on uh, Looking, is it called? Uh, yes, uh, set in uh, San Francisco and again focusing kind of on the, the relationships and friendships of uh, a, a group of sort of uh, gay men in, in uh, working in and around San Francisco. Uh, and it's great. That's a, I think that was one of my real pleasant surprises of this year and uh, one of the episodes, I think it's the fourth episode called uh, Looking for the Future, is because each episode is looking for something, mm. the, the title, uh, is essentially a, sort of a 30-minute remake of Weekend. Uh, and it's amazing. It's really, really great. Um, yeah, do you think that that's... Uh, do you think that Andrew Hay will return to film, or do you think that he's kind of got set now with the HBO show? I think he'll probably be uh, he'll probably stay with the HBO show for a couple of years. I think if uh, if Girls is any kind of uh, precedent for HBO, if someone is a director who kind of goes to TV and has to direct every episode and oversees the writing, it becomes a bit too much to actually go off and make it a film in between uh, in between seasons. So I imagine that he'll stay with the HBO show until that one's finished and then return to film um which i'm perfectly happy with because i think looking's a, a really great show but uh i it does kind of make me think oh what would be what would he be making if uh he had decided to follow weekend with another film mm. yeah and it's it's a bit of a no-brainer really isn't it would you like to do an hbo show where you've got like complete creative control or return to the british film industry which no one wants to work in yeah and uh i imagine that the budget of the Average episode of Looking, which is not even one of HBO's most high-profile shows or their most expensive, probably dwarfs the budget he had to make Weekend. Mm, yeah, yeah, sure. Anyway, Weekend, watch it. Uh, it's great. The next film we're talking about, well, we've kind of somehow got, we've managed to squeeze two boxing films uh, into the same top ten. Uh, the only two boxing films I think we've got <laughs> that are overrepresented here. Um, We've got a kind of a remarkable film, uh, which no one seems to have seen. Um, well, fewer people seem to have seen it than should have done. Uh, Robert Wise's The Setup. And what will he be doing in the meantime? Oh, you don't understand. I understand that he's 23 and you're 35, Bill. 35 in this business, you're an old man. Look, Joe, they're building this kid up, feeding him a lot of pushover. If I can get over him tonight, that'll mean a rematch. That's a semi wind up, 150 guarantee. Maybe a top spot, even. Top spot? Yeah, a top spot. And I'm just one punch away. I remember the first time you told me you were just one punch away from a title shot. Don't you see, Bill? You'll always be just one punch away. Um, another film unavailable on DVD in Europe. Uh, widely available in America, um, a kind of a noirish 
kind of masterpiece, I guess, Ed. Uh, kind of uh, notable, mainly for being shot in real time. Yeah, pretty much. I think there's some slight contraction, but, you know, the film's, I think, something like 75, 79 minutes long, and it it pretty much just focuses on that length of time surrounding one uh, fight taking place in a small uh, boxing club uh, in a, an unnamed American city, and it's just essentially about the build-up to the fight, the fight itself, and then the immediate aftermath, and what it means for a boxer played by uh, Robert Ryan and um it's a really interesting film because it's it's all about the atmosphere of you know this this very small low stakes kind of boxing club and the people involved in it and like Fat City which is kind of complimentary in some ways it's really just about guys who are kind of going nowhere and who aren't going to be kind of champion of the world and whose real uh uh, that their their greatest hope in life is, you know, in the, the setup. You know, all Robert Ryan wants is a couple of hundred dollars so he can, you know, buy a uh, so he can buy a stake in a better fighter. You know, and that's kind of the like, the extent of his ambitions. You don't really see that very often in uh, in sports films. No, I mean, I probably be kind of uh, hard pushed to say that the setup is a sports film. Mm. Um, it it certainly feels like. Uh, it's a film noir that just is set against the backdrop of a boxing match. Yeah, because it's all about, uh, you know, sort of low-level criminals trying to uh, arrange, uh, you know, a, 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 say to set up a fight to get Robert Ryan's character to throw a match, although uh, he's actually not included in the fix initially uh, because his trainers just assume he'll lose anyway, mm. uh, uh, which is, uh, you know, I think is something that says a tremendous deal about his character and where he is in his life that he's not expected to make money from fixing a fight because people just don't think he has a chance of winning. Mm. Um, in terms of kind of niche films, uh, this must be one of the best films that's shot in real time that's about boxing that's based on a long poem that I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, when I when I watched it for, for this, I was uh, surprised by the... Uh, credit of based on the poem by which is uh i think a very a rare one mm. in film yeah and it's um uh notable because it was um kind of first in well i'm sure there was lots back in the day but a notable uh instance of whitewashing uh the main character in the poem was a black boxer and wow. it's uh swapped out for a white boxer in the film um robert wise actually kind of said that he was willing to cast a black actor in the role, but there just wasn't any. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, which is weird considering there is actually a black boxer in the film. Yes. <laughs> it's just, but he's a he's a supporting character. Yes, which kind of makes it strange and, you know, um, kind of, you know, unsavoury as it were. Um, and the writer of the uh, poem, uh, Joseph March, I believe his name is, um, refused to kind of have anything to do with the film because they they changed the um, changed the race of the main boxer. Yeah, well, I, I definitely admire his integrity in that regard because I think it, it's a fundamentally different story if the character is black. Mm. But yeah, it, but even with him being white, it's very clearly about sort of class and you know someone who has nothing except his fists and 
basically just trying to scrape together a living with nothing but that really and uh, i think that uh it, it still works as a study of sort of being at the bottom of the american underclass um it's the setup is directed by um robert wise uh hollywood's great kind of unfussy unshowy craftsman who you know managed to make an amazing film in pretty much every genre you could imagine uh without really putting a stamp on it that you could say oh that's a robert wise film um because he was very much a capable set of hands that would direct pretty much anything um but he's kind of quite uh unique in the way that he, he's managed to make a pretty much a masterpiece in every genre uh without really kind of uh putting his huge individual stamp on it um, he, he directed uh, the sound of music uh, he directed um, what else am I thinking of here? Ed? Uh, Star Trek the movie. The movie he directed that. Uh, Day the Earth stood still. Day the Earth stood still. So he's kind of he's he's spanned the genres. Um, he's pretty much done a bit of everything. Um, but he does some quite interesting work with his camera. You were talking about uh, off air. Uh, you listened to the commentary and uh, learned something about the the kind of famous tracking shot that uh, starts the film. Yeah, the film opens with a, a sort of two or three long tracking shot, which takes you, you know, it starts outside the club and it kind of goes through and it's got all these characters standing around and most of them, uh, a lot of them don't show up in the film or don't have lines again, but it's really just there to establish the mood of the place and to kind of get the basic details. You know, there's going to be a fight that the Robert Ryan character is kind of seen as being washed up and he's going to be fighting a guy who's a real uh, hope, hopeful prospect. And it kind of slowly moves from sort of conversation to conversation and carry and captures all these people over several minutes. And, in, and you know, when I when I watched the film for the first time, I kind of thought, oh, wow, that's really kind of interesting that he's kind of doing this for, for kind of several minutes at a time. And in the commentary, Robert Wise says, you know, I don't like doing lots of setups and, you know, I don't like doing flashy camera work. I feel that it distracts from it and you're taking the audience out of it. And I was I was thinking, but... I was taken out of it because I noticed the fact that it's a really long tracking shot. And then I realized that uh, I'm only thinking it's kind of this bravura opening because, you know, I'm so used to kind of fast cutting uh, in, in modern films, that something that's just kind of uh, kind of a real kind of great example of Hollywood classicism, which is, you know, getting the most information across in this sort of least amount of time now comes across as almost avant-garde. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that the other day. I watched um, Detour, um, and there's a bit where uh, I think the character's kind of been dazed and, or you know, kind of waking up from being drunk, and uh, they couldn't afford the optical effects to kind of fade in and out. Kind of they wanted this blurry point of view shot. So basically, the the camera adopts the uh, the character's point of view and just looks at an item in the room, then just blurs out of focus, moves, then <laughs> kind of moves to the next one. You can't afford the optical effect. Just kind of go in and out of focus and keep it one shot. And that's the kind of thing that you think, well, yeah, that's practical. Um, but it's also something that now would, you know, seems like you say avant-garde. Yeah, I think in the past we've had a discussion about the scene in Jaws where Brody's talking to the mayor and they're going on that raft, and it's just one long shot for sort of two minutes while they're talking. And how nowadays that'd be something that uh, everyone would kind of cite mm. as kind of this this kind of really interesting thing but really it was just Spielberg going okay this is what needs to happen in this scene is these two guys need to have a conversation 
and I don't need to do anything except put the camera here. Mm. And uh, I think that's just kind of uh, a sign of the way that filmmaking has evolved for, for better or worse over the, the sort of the century is that uh, now sort of just leaving the camera running is, is something that people don't seem to do that much. Yeah, and I think that yeah, that's kind of wider point. I mean, I think that me and you could probably do an entire episode on what the shot in Jaws means where they go across on the ferry, but I mean, I'd I'd probably argue that it probably says something about the quality of writing in films now that mm. um, people just aren't interested in listening to exposition. And the, the, the dialogue in the Jaws scene on the ferry is exposition, expositionary. Um, it all is expositionary. Um, but it's compelling in the acts. The characters are uh, interesting and the uh, actors they've chosen are brilliant. And it doesn't need anything. It doesn't need anything else. Whereas... You know, now it's all changed. It's all rubbish now, Ed. <laughs> anyway. Except for these films. Except for these films. These, these are great. hundred. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's kind of like a diverted. Well, it's not like us to be diverted. We've already gone down the Austin <laughs> Powers route. Um, we're going to get back on track now um, with uh, one of the very finest uh, films of a, of a kind of a small group of films that came out in uh, the kind of post-Watergate era of the 70s, ones that were kind of deeply paranoid uh, conspiracy films. Uh, this is one of the best of those. Uh, it's um, the Parallax View. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. There is no evidence of a conspiracy. These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. Uh, Parallax View is uh, is it Alan Pakula directed it, I think, um, yeah. and it stars Warren Beatty as a reporter who, uh, kind of months after a, an assassination um, of a, a political figure up uh, Seattle Tower, is it the is it in Seattle that tower? Yes, the Space Needle. The Space Seattle. Needle in Seattle. Um, kind of finds a detail and becomes obsessed with it, and then starts to kind of slowly peel back the layers and. He starts to think he might have uncovered a, uh, a conspiracy, and uh, more importantly, a uh, a kind of program to train assassins called the Parallax Program. Um, it's a, a hugely paranoid uh, slice of late seventies American life, isn't it? Yeah, like it's absolutely kind of born from that the the, the Watergate era and the sense that the government is uh, behind things or that corporations are sort of behind things uh, in a way that people don't realise and they're controlling the world. And uh, I think what sets it apart from a lot of those is that it makes really good use of Warren Beatty's kind of very laid-back, very easygoing style, because obviously he's kind of uh, just this kind of effortless... He's got this effortless, effortless uh, movie star charisma and you kind of see him and you just kind of think that, oh, everything's going to be fine because it's Warren Beatty and nothing bad happens to Warren Beatty, uh, except in Bonnie and Clyde and <laughs> many many other films. Uh, but, you know, he just kind of gives off this air of, of things being in control. And as the film goes along, you realise that he has no conception of what he's actually wandered into. And I think that his kind of easygoing nature really heightens the insidiousness of the forces that he's dealing with. Yeah, it's a remarkably tense film. Uh, the the kind of last kind of ten or fifteen minutes are 
uh, kind of watch through your fingers tense. Yes, uh, it's it's it builds very slowly in in a similar way to uh, sort of all the president's men, which obviously is, a, is a definitely a post Watergate film because it's about Watergate. Mm. But um, you know, it's uh, it, where it builds this investigation and it kind of starts to slowly peel back the layers. But there, uh, you know, unlike uh, all the president's men, you know, people start dying. Sort of these kind of tangential people. And uh, I think because of the way that, you know, you assume movies are going to go and movies about conspiracies are going to go, it's going to kind of be uncovered and, you know, people be brought to justice. But all the way through, there's just this sense that, you know, it's kind of like the X-Files in a way where, you know, you get this sense that no matter how close you get to the truth, there'll always be another layer that you won't be able to uncover and that, you know, maybe the conspiracy is too great for even the truth to defeat. Yeah, and it's um, one of those 70s films um, that, like, has got an astonishingly bleak ending and um, outlook, if you think about what it's saying and Mm -hmm. what it's saying about America post-Watergate. It's uh, none too joyous, is it, on the the upside? No, I think it's just kind of... It really captures, similar to something like Three Days of the Condor, which is a film that does a similar thing in a slightly more kind of mainstream polished way which is again suggesting that there are forces at work that are driving the the political and social life of america and that no matter you know what the the kind of good people try and do they'll always be overwhelmed by, by these dark uh, forces that all exist in kind of shady back rooms and who are kind of responsible for all these horrible things in the world and it's deeply paranoid mm. um but also it's 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 a great paranoia that's uh emerges from you know the fact that there was a conspiracy you know in the the heart of government and that you know the 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 entirety of the american populace's uh, confidence was shaken and you know that it kind of emerges naturally from an era that was kind of paranoid for for justifiable reasons yeah um you did mention all the presidents, men. Did they? The, these two films do share the same director. Alan Bakula also directed the uh, absolutely fantastic neo noir Clute, uh, which um, very nearly made this list, but uh, just didn't. Um, he's a director who uh, kind of did a lot of great stuff. He also directed the Pelican Brief, but uh, we don't want to talk about that. Um, but um, he's someone who really had it in the seventies. Yeah, that 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 trilogy is a, a great. I think it's even kind of considered to be kind of a trilogy of, of Amer- American paranoia and American uh, fears in the kind of the early seventies. And I think he more than pretty much, even though he's not really kind of part of the new Hollywood movement because he's kind of separate from all that, he really does kind of typify a lot of the. The, the the things that were going on in America at that time as far as the culture was concerned. Hmm. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Got distracted there thinking about um, whether or not we're part of some global conspiracy. Um, but I don't think we are. We might be. It's, it's best not to consider it. You mm. know, things things go badly if you try and consider it. I've seen enough of these uh, post-Watergate <laughs> American thrillers now to know what's going down. Um. Okay, anyway, we're going to move on from uh, uh, post-Watergate kind of paranoia to um, probably one of the most contained films you'll ever see. Um, 
It's Louis Marles, My Dinner with Andre. When I met him at Finhorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, ah, New York, yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why do you think they don't leave? I gave him different banal theories. He said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. Uh, a film that's been kind of parodied quite a lot, uh, and... Uh, uh kind of referenced quite a lot. Um, a film unlike no other. Uh, a film in which two friends sit down and have dinner for two hours and just talk. Um, that's pretty much the, 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 that's what the film's about, right? Yeah, pretty much. It's just about uh, Wallace Shawn playing pretty much himself and Andre, Andre Gregory pretty much playing himself, just kind of going to a restaurant and you know, Wallace Shawn hasn't seen Andre Gregory in a long time and he's uh, he, he kind of sort of doesn't want to be there, but, you know, he, he agrees to go because he's his friend and he's sort of kind of dreading it, but he thinks, you know, I have to go. And then he ends up having this kind of great revelatory conversation with him and they discuss like life and art and the nature of love. And uh, it's it, it's great, I think, as a character study of these two men who have drifted apart, kind of coming together for this one meal that kind of is for, for at least for one of them is you get the sense it's kind of life changing, but just in the kind of the pure aesthetic pleasure of watching two great actors kind of talk to each other. I think it's just a kind of for, for a film that's kind of very kind of talky and, uh, you know, at, it kind of goes against the basic rules of what a film should be. Uh, it's actually really, really entertaining and really fun. Mm. It's weird, isn't it, that like it's never been a stage play because you think mm. that that would be ideal, and you think you'd think that's where its origins were, uh, but they weren't, and it's it still manages to be quite cinematic. It does. It helps, you know, that Louis Mal was a, a fantastic filmmaker who really knew how to uh, use the camera to kind of subtly convey the shifts in. The conversation and you know their their interaction with each other he doesn't kind of there's no kind of like really dramatic pans and zooms or anything but you know just kind of subtle shifts in the camera or cutting at the moment right moment really captures the rhythm of rhythm of conversation in a way that's uh really compelling um it's kind of uh odd that you know there's no plot to speak of there's, there's nothing mm. um driving the dialogue there's there's it's just kind of snippets of of, of talk about kind of life experience. And there's a long bit where uh, Andre relates how he was kind of involved in this um, theatrical uh, performance, as it were, like led by Jerzy Grotowski, who is a theatre practitioner uh, who uh, kind of talks about how uh, the rehearsal is, is the part of it that's valuable, not the performance. And he talks about being involved in this big thing where is he buried alive he's talking about or he's... Mm. Um, and okay, you kind of sit there listening to it and you go, well, what am I listening to? Uh, this seems to be uh, something that shouldn't work for someone who has no vested interest in the people involved. They're not friends of ours. Uh, why am I interested in this dialogue? But still, it just sucks you in for two hours. 
it, the, those two are just so kind of magnetic in their own ways. You know, Wallace Shawn, you know, has that kind of nervous, kind of um, sweaty energy to him, which obviously served him so well in The Princess Bride and, you know, many Woody Allen films. Mm. But, you know, Andre Gray, Gregory has this kind of uh, almost kind of zen, kind of shaman-like charisma to him where, you know, just the way he talks and the way he kind of, uh, the way he holds himself, you just kind of want to hear what he has to say just because of, he just has this kind of air of authority. Uh, and I think that they're so kind of different, but so complementary that, you know, their conversation becomes fascinating just because of who they are. Um, is the community uh, takeoff of uh, My Dinner with Andre the, the best kind of uh, parody of it? It's the most thorough. I think my favourite might be the Simpsons episode where they reveal Martin Prince playing the My Dinner of Andre uh, uh, arcade game <laughs> where he just kind of leans forward on the stick and it has things like saying tell me more and Bon Mose and things like that. I think that one, just for the, the, the sheer whimsical absurdity of it, is probably my favourite. <laughs> And they were talking about the Warriors being the only one on this list that has got a good video game made <laughs> from it. My dinner with Andre, the video game. Yeah, it has to happen. Um, okay, cool. Um, penultimate film on our list, uh, a big favourite of ours. Um, it's uh, One Car Wise, Chunking Express. <laughs> say that um, the first story in Chunking Express not really that necessary No, when I rewatched it I had basically forgotten that that half of it's in it at all It's not really even half is it, it's like the first third maybe Yeah, the story of a sort of a, a female criminal going through the underworld of uh, of Hong Kong uh, It's uh, I, I think it's complimentary in that it's also a story about kind of love and kind of connection because she uh, meets a young man who becomes obsessed with her and who kind of tries to follow her, which, you know, like I say, is complementary to the, the story that takes up the main part of the film, which is the kind of famous half of the film. But uh, I feel like, you know, it, it is so kind of unnecessary that if you hadn't mentioned it, I probably would have forgotten it happens again. Mm. Um do you think that uh, it, Chunking Express is uh, Wong Kar Wai's best film? Um, I'm kind of the, of the opinion that it's definitely my favourite of his. Um, oh, yeah, I don't it's think, my favourite of his. Well. I don't think it's quite as good as uh, In the Mood for Love. Yeah, I think it feels very transitional, and certainly I think that first story is part of that, because if you look at the sort of the first three uh, films he made, like uh, As Tears Go By and fallen angels and 
I know if you let me wonder what. But there's there's the kind of there's kind of three or four films he made, which are all you know sort of swooningly romantic, but they're all crime films essentially. They're all about gangsters and small time hoods. Uh, and if you look at the films he's made since then, you know they're not that at all. Like if you look at Happy Together, it's just about a, a gay couple kind of falling apart, or In the Mood for Love, which is you know about a, sort of a chaste romance between two two people who collaborate together on novels. Uh, you can see that 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 crime element disappears, and I think that the Chunking Express pretty much is the point at which uh, that divide happens. You know, it's kind of literalising the fact he has two stories that represent the two halves of his career. And I think that kind of prevents it from being kind of as wholly perfect as uh, as in the mood for love or, or happy together. But I think that it's kind of messiness and the idea that it was kind of this kind of project that he just kind of did on you know because he was having real trouble think uh, finishing ashes of time and it was kind of this throwaway thing i think really contributes to that that sense that it's this kind of kind of chaotic and beautiful uh, realization of you know people falling in love in this amazing setting and sh- kind of shot beautifully yeah speaking of the shot beautifully christopher doyle's photography uh is absolutely remarkable it's just so kind of vibrant and and uh, uh, kind of lurid at the same time. Mm, and I think it, it it's one of the ones that uses some of uh, Wong Kar Wai's best kind of ticks, like his use of different shutter speeds and, you know, his kind of use of really vibrant colour to kind of uh, depict kind of the senses more than reality. It's a, it's a great sort of sensory film and trying to capture the rush and chaos of this city and the stillness of kind of two people meeting and forming a, a connection. Yeah. Um, kind of makes me very hungry, that film. There's a lot of great food in it. Yeah. I mean, it's not the best film movie, uh, food movie of all time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it kind of makes you want to kind of uh, eat a lot. Is the best one the Keenan and Kel vehicle Good Burger? That's number two. I'd say that the, <laughs> the best, the best food movie is uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Uh, oh, that is a good one. Or um, uh, Big Night. Have you ever seen Big Night? No, it's it's perennially in my uh, Netflix streaming queue. Oh yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, yeah, that'll make you uh, definitely hungry. Um, but yeah, Chunky Express is a great food movie. Ah, um, uh, did you know Ed? The uh, Fallen Angels, the film uh, that Wong Kar Wai made uh, after Chunking Express, oh, uh, yeah. was originally the third part of of the three films, the three stories in Chunking Express. Uh, no, I didn't. That does kind of make sense. Man, does that perhaps explain why the first half, seem, that first little bit, seems slightly out of place? Yeah, as if he, because he obviously clearly decided to have three stories and then realised the second story was a lot richer and kind of forced out the other one. Mm. Yeah. Quite, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that as well. Um, yeah, Chung Express is a uh, quite remarkable film. And, um, I, you know, if we were ever to do a 90s episode, uh, I'd say there's probably got a good chance of being up there with the best films of the 90s. Yeah, I definitely feel like it's, it's one of the most uh, significant, certainly in terms of, uh, of Wong Kar Wai's career and, and in terms of Hong Kong cinema and uh, just cinema in general, I think you can really see his influence on people like Sofia Coppola, who uh, in uh, Lost in Translation kind of seemed to borrow a lot of his uh, his kind of style 
and a lot of his uh, his romanticism. Mm, yeah, I, well, I would say that if um, Chunking Express is um, Bob Dylan, then um, Lost in Translation is Mumford and Sons. <laughs> That's some very very hard words. Yeah, uh, couldn't help it because I fucking hate that film. Uh, <laughs> I, I sense my anger growing about Lost in Translation with every podcast we do, uh, <laughs> even though I haven't seen it since. <laughs> maybe I, should, I haven't seen it since the cinema. Maybe I should rewatch it and see if uh, see if I've mellowed. But anyway, um, our next film is Lost in Trans. No, it's not. Um, our next film and our final film of part two um, is another monster movie. And deliberately, we started this episode with a monster movie, and we're going to end with a monster movie. Uh, this time we're gonna. It's a very different monster movie because this is a comedy, um, a kind of a, a B movie parody. Uh, this is Ron Underwood's Tremors. We don't see anything, Val. So what the hell are you talking about? Over. Bert, they're under the ground. They're under the ground. They can take like a son of a bitch, big monster underground. Now get out! Hurry! Still a hugely enjoyable experience, Tremors. It is. Uh, I think it helps that you know it has uh, Kevin Bacon that is most unhinged. Mm-hmm. That helps a lot. But you know, it's just uh, it it knows it's uh, it's kind of what it is parodying, which are these kind of ridiculous monster movies, and it really commits to it. And in terms of it hits all of the expected beats, but it also invests just the right amount of. Uh, attention into making its uh, its kind of action scenes quite tense, and the characters figuring out what the what's causing the tremors, and you know how to defeat these uh, these creatures. Uh, you know, it it does pay sort of due diligence to it. It's not just a bunch of jokes about cheesy monster movies. It does spend time actually making you kind of care about what's happening. Yeah, uh, and basically, it's it's a standard monster movie set up a small american town uh, becomes ravaged by a, a kind of uh, a supernatural menace this in the form of uh, three giant burrowing worms with uh, prehensile tongues uh, that come out and kind of bite you and they kind of sense vibration they're blind giant kind of worm slugs uh, basically um but uh, the film has uh, great fun with that premise um and um kind of milks all it can out of a very small cast, uh, including people like Michael Gross and Victor Wong, uh, these kind of character actors who you know you see in lots of other films of this similar type. But they kind of just hit all the right notes, um, and it's a lot smarter than people give it credit for. I, I remember um, speaking to someone about Tremors very recently, and them kind of they didn't realise it was a comedy, mm. um, and I think that's actually uh, a real kind of compliment to the film and how well it's written yeah like, like i say it does really kind of uh treat its its subject matter with just the right level of seriousness it can still be quite funny but at the same time you know if you don't if you haven't watched a bunch of monster movies you can still enjoy it as a monster movie mm. it's the same balance that the original gremlins kind of had where gremlins is kind of this anarchic comedy but it also has these moments of genuine kind of horror and sort of tension in it 
Yeah, there's some really great scares in Tremors. Um, um, and kind of still really effective. The effects are great as well. Yeah, I remember the first time watching it, seeing you know when the uh, the the are they called grabbers, well, the graboids, dro- graboids. Well, that's what they they term them. Yeah, the the graboids. Uh, you know they're chasing. Uh, I think is it uh, Kevin Bacon and uh, Fred Ward. Yeah, they're um, they're chasing them and they're they're running and they jump over that kind of concrete gorge and then uh, uh, one of them ends up falling into the gorge and is just kind of waiting and the graboid is smashing his head against the concrete. And mm. when you finally see him, he is really kind of massive and disgusting and weird-looking creature. Uh, and it's, you know, sort of seeing it in the flesh, it does look... Uh, it doesn't look super cheesy. And you can see why uh, it's such a threat to these guys. Yeah, it's a, a triumph of uh, practical effects and kind of... Uh... Uh, insinuation like we talked about the opposite of the host um, earlier uh, I read recently that Kevin Bacon um, thought his career was over <laughs> when he was making um, Tremors um, which is really surprising because his, his turn in it is very funny and from kind of what he said at the time is he, he didn't quite get that it was as broad a comedy as it was and he was just like God, I'm making a movie about you know underwater underground worms I could be in trouble here yeah, that does strike me as quite strange because I think he, even though he doesn't understand it, his performance perfectly fits the film that he's in. Mm, yeah. Uh, which I think is probably as much of a credit to Ron Underwood kind of being able to convey to him what he wants, even though maybe Kevin Bacon didn't think that what he was giving was as good as he could have given. Yeah, Ron Underwood is a strange fish. Um, he directed this. Um, and he followed it with City Slickers, a film that we've both talked about in kind of glowing terms uh, in the past. Um, and then he kind of found himself at the helm of kind of big budget effects movies like Mighty Joe Young and then ended his career <laughs> effectively by directing The event- Adventures of Pluto Nash. Uh, it's an odd career trajectory, isn't it, Ed, given Tremors is the start point uh, and Adventures of Pluto Nash is, is the effective end point. Yeah, that's a that's a shame, really. But I guess it's the problem when your signature film is kind of an an effects he- heavy comedy mm. that people kind of just assume that you should headline every effects heavy comedy, uh, even if it's one that is as kind of horribly misjudged as the Avengers of Pluto Nash, mm. which is really really awful. I mean, it's like it's bad. I mean, everyone who's seen it will recognise it as bad. But the worst thing about it is there's this really weird sexual element between uh, Randy Quaid's character, who is a uh, uh, an android type thing, like a bishop type character, and okay. uh, this kind of uh, French made robot. It's really creepy, like beyond creepy. It shouldn't be creepy because they're robots and it's not real. But it, oh man, it's it's really odd. Um, that's, that's that does sound off putting. Yeah, it's by far the worst thing about that film, and that film's pretty fucking awful. Um, well, there you go, Ed. That's our next ten. That's a pretty solid bunch. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, that one kind of runs the gamut. Uh, if you were to watch all ten of them in a row, you would have a very emotionally confusing day. <laughs> but yes. it would start and end quite entertainingly. Mm, absolutely. Um, I'd recommend everyone watch all of these films in ten consecutive days, uh, all hundred. Uh, if anyone does that, then fair play to you. Um, you're braver than I am. Um, 
yeah, so uh, that's it for part two of uh, our alternate 100. Um, until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you.